Let's talk about some of the controversies around the the placebo arm of reduce it. So I found it fascinating that when strength was presented, the data from the study was presented. But what kind of stole the story was the, that they there was also a presentation implying that somehow the strength results reflected on the placebo and reduce it. And because strength was negative, uh, that uh, possibly reduce it uh, suffered from an increase in events in the placebo arm due to the mineral oil. And th that got a lot of press. So even as someone who was involved with strength, it, it felt a little weird to me to, to try and reflect on reduce it based on a trial that used a different drug that had a different study design was in different patients. And I could understand that being a discussion in, in a, a panel. I, I, I had a hard time seeing how we connected the dots between strength and, and reduce it. So as Christy already mentioned, there have been a lot of analysis about the mineral oil by the FDA and by others. Uh, and that analysis included uh, looking at the reduced placebo arm and the predicted event rate in that group to see if they actually had a higher event rate than what would have been predicted by their level of risk, as well as looking at all the data carefully but there's other little things uh, to, to discuss, including, you know, CRP levels on mineral oil, uh, mineral oil's effect on absorption of statins. And all those things have kind of bubbled back up to the surface, weirdly, uh, as part of a strength presentation. So, uh, Christy, I'm going to start with you, and then uh, I'll ask Deepak to comment. But first of all, you know, is it kosher to discuss a negative trial using a different drug with a different patient population and somehow cast aspersions on a separate trial when, when you do a presentation? And, you know, was that number one reasonable? And, you know, is there some merit to it? Well, you know, Alan, I, I think it's perfectly reasonable when you have a, a failed study to say why did it fail and go through all the possibilities and one of them could have been differences in placebo but you know the issue that comes up is the fda as you point out look at this very carefully uh, with it the jealous study well it had no placebo so it can't possibly be due to a placebo when there's no mineral or placebo with it so i you have to look at the totality of the data and if if you want if someone wants to do additional research and try to understand is a you know the study of the placebos or something else more power to them uh, it's, it's fine to raise a, a speculation but to, what you have to be careful of is a generating a hypothesis versus testing a hypothesis and having an answer so speculations not the same thing as saying well i know the answer with it i could speculate carboxylic acid somehow messed it up that's a speculation you know but but i'm just saying you can speculate lots of things i think you have to go review the data look at the totality deepak presented it very clearly just now uh, with it uh, and then i think that the thing that we if we step back is kind of clinically you know what's the role of omega-3s in our practice with if you're trying to lower triglycerides we know that epa dha combination the the generic one works fine for that if they if you get a tg of a thousand that's great but we're seeing is that it doesn't look like the triglyceride changes or what's going on necessarily for reducing cardiovascular events pancreatitis is not the same as a, a, a cardiovascular event yeah, so uh, I'm going to have Deepak dig into that some of the pro-inflammatory stuff associated with mineral oil and, you know, whether or not that could have explained, reduced it, because it was brought up as a hypothesis. 
and we certainly know that even over the counter omega threes, which are EPA, DHA, and who knows what else, saturated fat, all kinds of stuff, they lower triglycerides. We, you know, I'm old enough to have used them before we had any prescription brands for trying to avoid pancreatitis in patients who had severe hypertriglyceridemia. And, uh, and most of those patients got significant lowering of their triglycerides. But the outcome data for cardiovascular events is different. So a lot has been made about that since strength was presented about the mineral oil placebo. Deepak, I'm going to give you the last word about uh, what you think regarding that hypothesis and what the data is. And uh, I look forward to your thoughts on that. Sure. Well, I mean, I, I agree with everything Christy just elegantly laid out. I'll just try to add, add a few different points. So I think it's fun. I mean, you know, we're academics and we're just debating data and discussing data. It's fun to do. It keeps academic life interesting. Uh, so I'm all for it. But, you know, you've got to be careful when we engage in these sorts of uh, discussions with academics to not say things, say, to the media that can then be misconstrued and hurt patients. And I think some of the comments that went out to the media uh, with respect to the strength trial could have really uh, uh, hurt patients uh, sort of sense that there's something, you know, uh, wrong with the data. So, you know, in terms of changes in biomarkers that you uh, mentioned, yeah, there were small changes in, in, in CRP and LDL when one compares the two arms. But of course, there's no way of saying with a thousand percent certainty which arm is doing it if one has believed that the placebo is active, right? So, you know, ultimately for someone that's really concerned about that, then like I said, there's, you know, Jealous and Cherry and uh, a small Japanese trial that already uh, had shown uh, that uh, icosapentethyl, the specific active ingredient we studied and reduce it, you know, provides cardiovascular benefit. But, you know, in terms of biomarker changes, the FDA looked at this closely. They did their sort of worst case scenario analysis at the worst that these sorts of other biomarker changes uh, could account for if we're attributing them directly causally to pharmaceutical grade mineral oil, a bit of a stretch, but even if we are doing that, you know, it accounts for about 3% or so of the benefits. So, you know, it, it's kind of an academic discussion. So then, oh, it's not a 25% relative risk reduction, it's a 21%. I mean, you know, does that matter? Would that really affect the decision a physician might make to use the drug in a patient? I hope not. Now, I, I don't even concede that 3%. That was a worst case scenario done by an independent group. The statisticians at the FDA are very talented and they put the, the raw data through the ringer. So, uh, you know, that's an independent sort of validation of the data, Health Canada has done the same, and there are other regulatory uh, reviews going on around the world, as I alluded to earlier. But uh, let me make at least a couple of other points before you wrap up that I think are, are useful from the reduced trial. We, of course, looked at side effects in this placebo-controlled blinded trial, and the drug was tolerated as well as and as safe as placebo. That's terrific for the drug. Uh, there was a slight excess in hospitalization for AFib and in, in uh, largely minor uh, types of bleeding, not major bleeding. But uh, overall, it was tolerated as well as uh, the placebo. In a perverse way, we can also look at the opposite of that. That is, the placebo was tolerated as well as uh, and as safe as the drug. So is it really the case that mineral oil is a specific cardiotoxin, but it doesn't have any other bad adverse uh, effect that is causing hospitalizations or some other sort of major side effect? That would be kind of a weird thing. So it, it tells me that the placebo couldn't have been this 
horribly noxious, toxic uh, substance. Again, it's an odd way of looking at the trial, but it does show, you know, that the placebo was as safe as the drug. And the drug's been in use for hypertriglyceridemia in the U.S. for years, millions of prescriptions. And, you know, we know that the drug is safe and well tolerated. Uh, so that's a, an odd way of looking at things. But in fact, I think pretty good evidence. And the strongest evidence that refutes this mineral oil a hypothesis is reduced EPA, where uh, we had looked at the on-treatment serum levels of EPA in the trial. And what we found was highly significant correlations with the primary endpoint, the secondary endpoint, death from cardiovascular causes, fatal non-fatal MI, fatal non-fatal stroke, total mortality, e even hospitalization for heart failure at the highest achieved levels of EPA was lower, uh, sudden cardiac death, cardiac arrest. Uh, all these things which were reduced in the trial overall, significant correlations between higher achieved EPA levels and lower rates of those events. So that tells me that EPA is where the action is at, that this drug, which is a highly purified ethyl ester of EPA, is delivering it. And the downstream tissue effects, which we don't fully understand, uh, in part are anti-inflammatory, antioxidative, and a a bunch of other fancy scientific pleiotropic terms, that those effects produce the benefits that we saw. And, and, and to me, that's the strongest evidence. We threw triglycerides, LDL, CRP, HDL, everything else in the model. And those things, while significantly correlated with outcomes, you know, it was a fraction uh, of the uh, association between uh, the measurement of the biomarker and the outcome. So uh, that, I think, is extremely strong data. I would also add that that's strong data refuting a placebo effect. That is, why is there a dose response to EPA induced by placebo, which didn't have either a benefit or a harm with respect uh, to any substantial changes in EPA? So why is there a dose response if the explanation for the reduced trial results or even part of the explanation is due to a noxious placebo effect. Well, then there shouldn't be a dose response uh, with EPA. That would be entirely illogical. So it's kind of a subtle argument, but that's actually the strongest argument that there isn't some weird placebo effect that is causing the benefit that is in fact due to the drug. And, and finally, I'll just say, trying to uh, wrap up with strength and with reduce it, you know, EPA levels were measured in uh, these trials and in Jealous, I will add. So three trials, EPA levels, Strength and Jealous use plasma EPA, uh, reduce it use serum. There's some differences that's not so, so critical uh, for this discussion right now. But in the Western uh, strength population and the Western reduce it population, the baseline EPA levels were around 20, 21 in strength and 26 in reduce it. But, but you, you can just think around 20. In strength, as you guys both know, the uh, achieved level is 90 uh, micrograms per milliliter. So uh, that, as it turns out, is the same as the baseline level in Jealous. Uh, of course, in Jealous, Japanese patients higher fish intake on average than the Western population. So with strength, that formulation got to the same level as they started with in Jealous. And in Jealous, what was achieved was around a level of 170, which was pretty similar to what we achieved in Reduce It, uh, albeit with four grams a day in a Western population where they were starting at a level of 26. But the bottom line is the achieved levels for both reduced and jealous were the same, about twice of what it was in strength. And uh, I, I heard some of the uh, sort of uh, chatter around uh, strength about, oh, you know, there are patients that are achieving high levels of EPA here. 
and, and even they didn't have a benefit, but that, that's actually not necessarily the right way of looking at it because if there's a threshold effect that's necessary for benefit, well, then it doesn't actually even matter just what the mean or median level is. It, it's, it's surpassing, it would need to surpass a certain level. And uh, there, you know, the level was just significantly lower in strength than either jealous or reduce it. So mm -hmm. that is yet another explanation beyond the fact that Epinova was a mixture of omega-3 fatty acids, beyond the fact there were some issues with tolerance with that drug, and beyond the fact that I personally think it's prepared in a way that is quite dissimilar from icosapentethyl. Icosapentethyl isn't just the drug EPA in, a, in an ethyl ester, it's also prepared in a way that prevents or at least minimizes to the extent possible oxidation. So the product that gets to the patient when they're opening their uh, bottle, that capsule has been prepared in a way that really prevents oxidation. So it's a highly purified ethyl ester that's not been oxidized. And with fatty acids or omega-3 fatty acids specifically here, if they get oxidized, that probably undoes whatever good they might do. And I think that has been a real issue with the supplements that have been studied, all of which are subject to oxidation the way that they're prepared and packaged. Those things matter in prescription drugs. Uh, people pay attention to those things. But even with Epinova, my sense is that oxidation might have been part of what I had undone. So there are a lot of potential explanations, but the bottom line is it was a different drug with a different result. And that's okay because different drugs perform differently in different trials, but with reduce it, uh, along with four other separate trials, I think we've got a very consistent story for specifically uh, prescription icosapentethyl. All right. Well, thank you, Deepak. That was a, a terrific summary. I know that, uh, yeah, we did look at EPA levels and strength, and we didn't see any incremental uh, difference in outcomes based on the EPA levels. But as you say, the achieved levels were significantly lower than those levels and reduced it. And that's something that isn't always brought up. I think one important takeaway point as we wrap up is that uh, both trials did show an increase in atrial fibrillation. So that's a real issue and one that uh, we haven't focused a lot on, uh, but there is a slightly higher risk of uh, atrial fib on these omega-3 preparations, both in strength and, and reduce it. And we'll need more discussion about that, try to determine whether, you know, which patients are particularly at risk and you know, risk versus benefit in those folks, um, as well as a slightly higher bleeding rate. So these were two things that were consistent in the trials that we could take away from both trials. So Deepak, with regard to the AFib and reduce it, and I don't know, Christy, if we have the data from strength, uh, were there any predictors of people who are more likely to develop atrial fib uh, in the treatment arm? Uh, in other words, were there characteristics where it, was it more common in people with a history of paroxysmal atrial fib in the past or more common in people with hypertension? Or, do we know, know any of that? Absolutely. Great question. And again, this is uh, in the public domain in as much as it was part of the FDA uh, briefing book. And I did present some of it for my portion of the FDA presentation. Brian Olshansky, uh, who is the chair of our data safety monitoring board, a prominent electrophysiologist, is, is working on the manuscript along with uh, Mina Chung, another prominent electrophysiologist from Cleveland Clinic. And uh, the biggest predictor is actually a history of atrial fibrillation. Most of the AFib was in patients who had a known history of atrial fibrillation. In those patients without atrial fibrillation, yes, there was a slight excess in atrial fibrillation, 
uh, during the trial, but in absolute terms, it was really minuscule. But there was still a signal that the drug was raising AFib uh, risk even in, in, in those patients. But really the bulk of it in absolute terms was in patients who already had a history of AFib at baseline. So it, it, uh, usually the case that if there's gonna be a sort of an increase in hospitalizations for AFib with the drug, it'll be in patients where you already know they have AFib. And those are patients, if appropriate, as is mostly the case, that should be anticoagulated and they should be rate controlled anyway, just for their AFib. But, increasingly maybe data support, once again, rhythm control in patients. So, you know, that's just good AFib care that should be happening anyway. Uh, and in a patient with well-controlled atrial fibrillation, if they otherwise had indications for icosapentethyl, I wouldn't hesitate to use it. On the other hand, if somebody has, you know, out of control AFib, they're coming into the hospital every uh, week or every month with an AFib exacerbation, you know, there I wouldn't start this drug. So it, it's like the bleeding issue. I, I don't think it is a showstopper in any respect, but if somebody's frail, they're already having a nosebleed uh, every day, uh, you know, there I wouldn't go ahead and uh, add this drug in general. So good clinical common sense uh, can address both those potential issues in, in patients who either have a history of AFib or a history of bleeding. And again, that's why, you know, the FDA didn't put a black box warning around use of anticoagulants or DAPT or, or prior AFib because the data don't support doing that. Yeah, that's helpful. I've had patients who saw this in the newspaper and said, you know, I, I've had I've had paroxysmal AFib once or twice a year and uh, you now you and I've got coronary disease and uh, you know had recurrent events despite aggressive control of LDL and their their triglycerides are over 150 so that they fit all the criteria from reduce it to, to add something, but the patients are concerned that will this drug increase their risk of atrial fib? And I think that's a clinician's risk versus benefit discussion, which is always appropriate. So, well, you know, just to quantify what we saw among adjudicated hospitalization for AFib over an average of five years was an increase from placebo to drug from 2.1 to 3.1%. So a 1% absolute excess in hospitalization for AFib over five years. So, you know, the magnitude of it, not to trivialize any side effect, is rather small. And, and, and I mentioned Dr. Olshansky, uh, the uh, prominent electrophysiologist, the chair of our data safety monitoring board. In fact, yeah, he was probably the first person I called after the trial was unblinded. And one of the things I asked him, other than, hey, this is terrific, the trial's positive here, was, uh, you know, what did you think uh, of the uh, AFib? And he said it didn't even register on their radar that it was such a small signal when you looked at the annual rate. So he thought it was nothing. Uh, but uh, you know, in the presentations and publications, obviously we as a steering committee wanted to be completely transparent, forthright, and not seem like we're minimizing you know, a side effect of a branded prescription drug. But, but to put it in perspective, he actually, and the data safety monitor board as the trial was being conducted, that was an on their list of things to even be worried about. That is going into the trial, they realize there might be effects either pro or anti uh, on AFib and uh, VF uh, respectively. But um, you know, during right. the trial, this wasn't something that they were really worried about. They just... So uh, Christy, do you know, was there any evaluation of uh, risk for AFib in this? I, 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 haven't, I haven't seen it. Yeah, me either. So if someone's working on that, I'm unaware of it. I'd like to thank you all for uh, listening in on today's podcast. We hope that we've shed some light on the similarities as well as the differences uh, between the strength trial and reduce it. And uh, given a little bit of insight about uh, the, the uh, banter about 
both trials and about uh, the implications of both studies, as well as uh, the strength of the data uh, for uh, both clinical trials and the evidence overall for omega-3s. So thanks again for tuning in. Uh, I'd like to thank my guests, Dr. Deepak Bhatt and Chris, Dr. Christy Ballantyne for a really insightful discussion today. Did you miss part one? It's available now and you don't want to miss it.